This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Jen White. For most of us, a house is a place to live. A staircase is something to help us move between floors, and a door is simply a space we pass through. But for carpenter Mark Allison, a house, a staircase, a doorway are opportunities for beauty. Allison has been called many things, including the best carpenter in New York City and the man who builds impossible things. His specialty is lavish and challenging projects for the ultra-wealthy. His clients have included David Bowie and Robin Williams. In his new book, however, Allison is less interested in these extravagant projects and more interested in what they've taught him, how to build a life worth living. The new book is called Building, A Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of Good Work. And he joins me now to talk about it in studio. Mark, welcome to the program. It's such a pleasure to have you. You came all the way from New York just to be here in person. So thank you. I wanted to be here in person. To me, that seems like the right thing to do. And it's wonderful to meet you in person. Likewise. Okay, so I said you've been called many things. One label you don't like is Master Carpenter. Why not? I th- to me, mastery is something. Mastery is something one hopes to achieve in one's life, and and uh, you know the people I know who are the very very best at the things they do, and I've met a lot of people in my life who were just incredible at what they do, and I don't think any of them would ever call themselves a master of their trade. It's it's something that kind of it's almost like a like an advertising thing from the old days to say you know master carpenter Mark Ellison has done this and done that. It's and. To me, it's it's a limiting term because I the the more I've learned and the more I've done in my life and the more different sorts of things I've built, the more I find out how little I know about what I'm doing. And and to me, if I thought I'd achieved mastery, well, then I guess I'm there and I've done it. But I don't think I'm anywhere near understanding or mastering this craft or mastering a trade. Is there something? I don't know, comforting or exciting about removing the expectation of mastery from your craft? Mm, that's, uh, yes. I mean, to me, it's exciting because if I re- remove the expectation of mastery, it allows me to always feel that I'm just another little step along the way. I mean, I don't know that there is a 100% for a, a tradesperson or, I mean, you know, who's, who is the most masterful broadcaster you've ever met? And, and you go like, was it Edward R. Murrow? Was it, you know, medium, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, right. but I mean, you think of people you've really admired and probably if you've ever met them or spoken to them and you said, you're a master of your craft, they'd kind of go like, I'm, I'm getting along in it. I'm doing well. I, I, I can mark that I've gotten competent at it and I got then I got pretty good at it. Then I got kind of really good at it. But but it leaves room for endless growth. And and any kind of endeavor, to me, that's worth pursuing, has it's endless. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. You're never going to get to the bottom of a craft. You're never going to get to the bottom. Who's, who's going to be the most masterful ballet dancer that ever lived? And they always want more. And that's, that's, what, that's the beauty of it. When you're trying to describe what you do to someone who's unfamiliar, what do you tell them you do? 
Well, if I meet them at a cocktail party, <laughs> I'll tell them I'm a carpenter so they'll stop talking to me. <laughs> and, uh, Wait, be, why does that shut down the conversation? They'll be like, well, I mean, because most of the parties I go to are, are people who are actors and musicians and artists and things like that. And if I say I'm a carpenter, then I'm interest, instantly the least interesting person in the room. And I don't have to explain myself, which is something I really like doing, not explaining myself. I mean, if people ask a little further or say I say I get interviewed on a radio show or something like that. Let's say. I need to explain <laughs> myself. I I tend to take on projects and I'm known in New York for taking on projects that have elements to them that are very architecturally ambitious and 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 quite Quite often, the way a project reaches me is it's already gone to a couple other people, and they're like, uh, "No, we don't want that." Mm. And and finally, somebody will say, "Call Mark," and then they, the person calls me and says, "I've spoken to four other people, and they all say this can't be built. <laughs> but if it can be built, you'll do it." And then I very stupidly say, "Like, okay, it sounds like you're my customer." And it could be, and very often there's at least one, sometimes many, very grand elements in a project. Usually a staircase, sometimes some crazy things around windows, sometimes some doorways, vaulted ceilings. I mean, things that are very, very ambitious. And most, interestingly enough, most people don't really want any part of building them because there's a huge liability to building things that haven't been built before. And I mean, even I have to ask myself every time, can I do this? Like, can mm. I pull this off? Is this a good idea? And and uh, so... Well, wait, what's the distinction between... Can I pull this off and is this a good idea? Because those are two different questions. Those are two different questions. Well, I mean, the first part of it, is this a good idea is, is this legal? Okay. Is it safe? <laughs> is it going to kill somebody? Because that does enter. I mean, I talk yeah. in the book about a staircase that I was asked to build where in I, my estimation, if I'd built it as designed by the architects, people were going to die on the staircase. They, they were going to die. And in a kind of horrible way. I mean, they'd probably fall 60 feet to their desk and then the staircase would fall on top of them and that would take care of that. And uh, so I, that's, that's sort of the line I won't cross. And I did build that staircase. We just didn't build it the way that it was designed. Mm-hmm. We, we changed a lot of the ways it was engineered and designed. So the first thing is, is this a good idea? And that, that to me means, is it dangerous or unlawful? And... The other one is, can I pull this off? And that's where the fun starts. You know, that's where I'll start calling, you know, if, they, if there are steel elements, I'll start calling some of the steel people I work with. I'll talk to engineers. I'll talk to different people about it and say, we're kind of not doing this the usual way, but it's going to be really cool if we can pull it off. And, and that's where I get excited. How is what you do different from what an architect does well architects don't build things really architects draw things and and the, to me the the real distinction is the architect comes up with the grand aesthetic vision of whatever it is we're building usually a home and and that's their purview and i i i i don't really get into that area that's not my I mean, I do a lot of detailing that, to me, makes projects come together a little better than they might have. And I do a lot of that. But I never say that I design a place. They design it. They make all the drawings. I build stuff. I have to pull the damn thing off. Somebody has to make that staircase look like it's flying through space with no apparent means of support. <laughs> I mean, this, this is such a niche job. 
Yeah. <laughs> How on earth did you carve out a space for yourself in this industry? It's like, oh, we've got an impossible project. Let's call Mark. I mean, the the the, the strangest thing about it is that if I go back, say, 30 years, I was a carpenter working for uh, construction companies. And, and they were, we were I was already doing high-end jobs in Manhattan. But every time something like – every time something really unusual or really challenging would come up, almost nobody wanted to touch it. And I would just be the person there who would go like, I'll give it a try. And at that point, I was a wage worker. And if I messed up, I didn't even have to pay for it. I mean – uh, and I have messed up. I mean, the book. Yeah. There's a lot of messing up in this book, yeah. and and uh, so I kind of got paid to learn how to build unusual things. And I always would just. I maybe I'm just dumb, and, <laughs> no, <laughs> and, and not at all. And maybe I'm just foolish. I mean, I was the one who would always say something. Someone would say, "We have to build this crazy dome ceiling with these moldings running around it and these inset lights," and I'd be like, "Okay." <laughs> or and uh, then I would try it and and I did I I really enjoy it because I, I don't really like building anything twice I want to build something new and different every time and I like to invent new techniques and I like to I mean inventiveness is one of the most exciting things to me coming up with a brand new way of building things that no one's really thought of before is all the fun in the world Matthew emails what a great topic as a woodworker and luthier I hope I said that right. What I love most is transforming a piece of wood in its tree form into a living instrument capable of evoking any imaginable emotion. And as a person who can make an instrument but can't play one very well, I derive great pleasure from seeing an instrument I created being played by a competent musician. There's no greater joy to me. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation with Mark Ellison with these messages we got from some of you. I first got interested in woodworking after reading George Nakashima's book, The Soul of a Tree, when I was at the University of Maryland Christmas of uh, 1982. It inspired me to 
transfer to Philadelphia College of Art for their furniture design program. Uh, we got a chance to visit George Nakashima with the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Day Trip in the summer of uh, 83. Uh, very rewarding. I, I worked in shops in Philadelphia and Baltimore. I build, but I mostly design things and create things, musical instruments during COVID. I redesigned and built into my motorhome. I just would like to convey that it's real important for people to not be afraid to take things apart. Uh, I'm taking apart a couple of radios right now to repair them if possible. I build sets for film and theater. What keeps me coming back is the reward, definitely, of the audience seeing the spectacle, but also craft in the actual production. Things the audience may never see, I often take pride in as well. Michael, Janet, Chester, thanks for those messages. Mark, in your book, we learn about your mom, uh, who was a physician. She started medical school with four young children, which was unheard of at that time. She didn't even tell people she had children while she was in medical school because she thought people would say, well, this is impossible. She did a lot of impossible things. I mean, this is in the 1960s, but she graduated at the top of her class and was the only mother on stage during the commencement. Mm -hmm. How did her life and work shape yours? Well, my mom made it clear that that people think there are a lot of rules in life that I, I, I don't think actually exist. And, and uh, you know, she the rule at her time, I mean, the, she went to the University of Pittsburgh Medical School and she was admitted actually the year before they were sued for for discrimination against women candidates. And uh, she actually got in by the higher plateau that they had set for women to allow women candidates in. But then the very next year, the University of Pittsburgh was sued because they were discriminating against women candidates. And uh, little did they know, she also had four kids from age four to nine at home and because uh, that wasn't on the application. And... Uh, and then she went on to – I mean, it's interesting because I think back on that period of my life, I, we never missed a family meal. I, my mom used to cook dinner for us. And I can't, I can't – at this age, I can't even fathom how that was possible. And she got through medical school. She did an internship and a fellowship and a residency and uh, went on to have precisely the career she wanted. I mean, she became a pediatric neurologist which was precisely what she wanted to do, and she loved doing it, and she was marvelous at it, and she made a lot of difference in the medical community. Um, and that, you know, that wasn't... I, I, I talk about it as a shining example to me in the book, but that was my mom. That's mm -hmm. how I grew up. And, and when she said, you can do anything in this world, she meant it. And and we believed it as kids. And then, of course, I turned around at 16 and dropped out of high school, which was like to everybody's horror. And, and, uh, uh, and it always seemed like things were going to go south for me. You know what I mean? I, wasn't, I didn't actually graduate from high school. I got a GED. And then I would take odd jobs in New York. And I just kind of kept on plugging away and trying different things. I adored work. I have always adored work. I like scooping ice cream. I like driving a truck. I like unloading trucks. I like sweeping. I still like sweeping. And, and that's that's handy, I'm sure, in your line of work. <laughs> no, it's great. When actually, whenever everything gets kind of to be too much for me, I'll pick up a broom and just sweep up the site. Wow. And it makes me kind of puts me back together mentally. And uh, and. And I and I just kind of kept at it and kept trying new things and different things and adding things to my you know quiver and and I've been doing that consistently 
for 40 odd years now. And now I have this very bizarre quiver that appears nobody else bothered to <laughs> assemble. <laughs> well, how did, how did you land on carpentry? How, how did that come to you as the thing? Well, after I didn't graduate from, after I, I attended my high school graduation without graduating, um, I was hired by one of my classmates' parents to renovate a townhouse in Central Square. And I didn't know anything about, I mean, I knew enough, I knew, my father has always had a workshop. My father's always been a woodworker, always been a hobby woodworker. Mm -hmm. And so I knew how to use tools. I knew how to work a table saw. I, you know, I started table saw when I was seven because it was the 60s. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> nobody Safety cared. Safety wear. <laughs> yeah, if a, if a kid lost a finger, what, I mean, whatever. At least he learned a lesson. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I took that job and I lived in the building while we were renovating it in a very kind of camping out kind of way. And uh, the the owners of that house hired a very accomplished uh, local carpenter man named Sam Clark who would come every week and he'd talk to the two of us who were working there and kind of lay out the work and explain what we were to do and then check up what we had done and fix anything we'd messed up. And it, and I just adored it. I mean, there's there's nothing like at the end of the day you go, you look and you say, I, you know, even when it's the simplest wall, I built that wall and then, and then I built that deck and then I built, I put those stairs, I actually didn't build stairs then, but I like, I put those stairs in or I, I, I did that railing and, and, uh, that has always been the charm of it for me. Every day I know what I did and there's a kind of fatigue from working hard every day that when I don't work physically, I miss it. I, mm. I, 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 I like the sore muscles and the, and I'm tired enough to just plop into bed and I kind of earned it. We got this email from Troy who says, I love woodworking. I first started at 10 years old with a circular saw as a <laughs> gift and haven't stopped since. I currently enjoy making chessboards and jewelry boxes with exotic wood. My dream is to someday do woodworking full time, working for myself to make a living. I'm 30 now and this is a challenge, but I will keep doing what I love. So Troy has already found the love part, yes. right? Yes. What advice would you have for him as he's trying to trying to build this this career well the trick is to the, i mean after the love part the trick after the, the trick is the pay part right and uh because i mean for instance i've played music my entire life and i've never done it professionally because i didn't want the pay part to ruin the love part for me and I knew a lot of musicians that for whom the pay part had ruined it. They were playing things they didn't even like playing, you know, Broadway show pits and stuff like that. They were super accomplished musicians and they were total professionals. But they but the the pay part had ruined the love part. And so you have to be careful with that because there are certain endeavors where that happens. And the way I the way I, I, I found my way in, in my craft and carpentry was it was always a job. I was always getting paid for it somehow. And then I would just keep taking on the things that only I would do. And in a weird way, the, the more I did me, the more I did the things that were mine and only I could do, and, or even only I would do. I, would, I was the only one stupid enough to take on certain projects. And, and, uh, uh, but then I would do that, and then someone would hand me another one. Mm. And after 20 years of doing these absurd projects I built one after another, suddenly I was the guy who you came to to have these things done. And at that point, 
I was able to command a salary that I was like, okay, you want a you want a flying staircase that's see through? Fine. That <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's gonna run. Ya. This is what it's gonna run. Yeah. And usually the 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 people, I mean, the people who build those sort of things in their homes, it kind of hardly matters. It, yeah. It's you know they they buy carpets that are more expensive than the staircase I built them sometimes. So. And the artwork on the walls is certainly more expensive than the staircase. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. I am a furniture maker and furniture designer. I've just launched the Kindred Heirloom Collection, which is creating heirloom quality furniture for the masses, and it's always been my thought that we can't have the best people and the best minds only working for the richest people of our community and our world. So I'm now taking the last 20 years of knowledge of design and manufacturing and bringing that to everybody at attainable prices. Martin in Missouri, thanks for that message. Mark, you talk about the class dynamics at play on a job site and the rift between the people who make beautiful homes and the people who live in them. What has your work taught you about how class plays out in that environment? Well, I mean, the, the, it's interesting because the the man who just spoke has a real point. It's, you know, you go back through the history of humanity and and the richest people on earth have the fanciest things on earth and the, the the most beautiful things on earth get made for the richest people by and large it's not it's not a hundred percent true because there are also there there's a there it, it, there's no getting around the fact that rich people have money and if you need to make money at something it's they're they're a good clientele to have landed any you know an, a, a a joiner in you know, 16th century France really would like to be the joiner for the king because that means he's going to have a successful business. And 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 many of the things we look at at museums were made for some of the richest people on the face of the earth. And that's economics. And that's the way – I didn't set up that system. That's the system I was born into and the system that we currently live under. But what is it like straddling those different worlds? Well, I mean – Rich people are 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 an interesting lot. They're really not. They're not. They're not any different. I mean, it's funny because people ask me like, "What are rich people like?" And the truth of the matter is, the rich people are are as diverse and as varied in their behaviors as anybody else. But having 
huge buckets of cash gives people an opportunity. It gives them agency and it gives them the ability to behave in ways that amplify their natures. So very, very generous rich people are extraordinarily generous and, and, and do all kinds of things to build foundations and try to solve the earth's problems. And, and very mean spirited rich people do their very best to, uh, flip the rest of the world off, and uh, uh, and they're good at it. There's a moment in the book where you describe having to throw out several brand new toilets because some of the workers had used them and the owners didn't want them afterwards. And I mean, behind these lavish homes is is the backdrop of an ongoing housing crisis in the U.S. I mean, do you ever have moments when you look around and you think, "This is beautiful. I pulled off the impossible," but oof. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do, and I and and I appreciate that the the last man who spoke wants to spend the next twenty years taking what he's learned in what whatever it is he's been doing, and taking that out into the world so that the world might benefit by his knowledge. And I feel very much in the same boat that that I've been doing this for forty three years now, and it has mostly been i mean listen my kids got to go to college and uh uh my home is paid for and that's great but i but i do feel that it's incumbent upon me now to see what good i can do in the world and and there are several problems directly associated with housing i mean the the you know the climate change the construction industry contributes to almost 40% of climate change in this world and Things like that have to stop. And people do need comfortable, decent, clean, affordable, and economic, you know, economic to run uh, homes where, where they can be, where people can live decent lives. And, and, you know, I just, on my way to Washington today, I went by Camden and you just look at a town and go like, it's it was built you know the part you can see from the railroad tracks was built probably 1880s 1890s and it's destroyed it's gone and and those are not homes people should be living in and they they're unheatable i'm sure they have lead pipes i'm sure they have lead paint they're poisonous traps and and we have to stop as builders stop building in that way we can't build traps for people we have to build homes for people and I am I am trying to find ways for the, whatever's left of my career, which might be another twenty years, um, to move in the direction of of building things that are helpful and thoughtful and economical and affordable that that benefit a much broader swath of humanity than what I've the tiny little corner of humanity I've benefited at this point. <laughs> well, let's head back to our inbox. Hi, my name's Randy. I've been a carpenter uh, about 50 years now. Started helping my dad out when I was 12. I still love the work, enjoy the challenge. Um, It's not just physical work, it's also mental work. You've got to be 10 steps ahead of yourself. When I got out of high school, I worked for a company with an old-time carpenter, the bib overalls and all. And if I made a mistake, he says... You learn more from your mistakes than you do your accomplishments, and then he would show me how to fix it. He never, he never made me feel bad about that, and I love the profession. 
Randy, thanks for that message. Martha also writes, My husband's a boat builder, another niche subset of woodworking and carpentry. As I write, he's making the special crown molding for the exterior of our 1830s house, while a team of two local carpenters replaces the 50-year-old cedar clapboards on the windward side of the house. I have nothing but respect for these problem solvers. The trendy word maker doesn't do half justice to the skills and brains of them. Mark, you've said you believe it takes 15 years to become a good carpenter and then another 15 to do the kind of carpentry you do. What happens in that learning process? How much of it is about making making mistakes and getting it wrong? Well, it's all, I mean, it's all about mistakes. It's, it's, uh, there's no way to do it without making mistakes. And I was talking with a young carpenter uh, just yesterday um, and he was about to do something in a way that I, 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 and I, Stopped him and I said, "Let's do it this way." It's it's hard to describe the technique, but uh, and he he was like, "How do you know to do? Like, how do you know how to do all these things?" And the answer is, I've screwed up everything. Like, I've never done anything right the first time. I mean, maybe I have. I mean, there I, there have been a couple cases of beginner's luck. I do write about beginner's luck in the uh, book, but almost everything that I've ever done, I've messed up at least once, and. All the techniques that I've learned, and especially the ones I've developed myself that are like techniques that are mine, um, are the result of never wanting to make that mistake again. <laughs> because mistakes are costly. They're painful. They, sometimes they require a trip to the hospital. Um, and, I, and, and my entire career is built on mistakes. It's, and, you know, and a lot of them are, you know, the, the little ones are repairable. You can fix it. You can redo the piece of wood. You can do something again. But, but I've done, and I describe in the book mistakes where, you know, I destroyed a plate glass window on a, on a, on a park Avenue, uh, uh, Central Park West penthouse. Oof. And it had to be hauled up. The new one had to be hauled up by crane and that, and that, even at that time, that cost about $20,000 to fix. And that's, the, that's what can go wrong in this business. Things, when things go wrong, they go really wrong sometimes. And, and, that's, and those are the hard lessons. And, but that's almost every little thing I do, I do it a particular way. Because I've made the mistake in the past. It's, it's actually just even startling to me because it happens hundreds of times a day when I, I'll, I'll start to do something and go like, no, I have to do it my way because I've already messed that up and I don't want to mess it up again. Chip asks, how do you keep the perfect from getting in the way of the done? I have dozens of projects whose elegant solutions are on hold due to an inability to solve some particular problem in the elegant, creative, unique way that I envisioned. So how so the perfect is <laughs> compared to I just got to finish. Well, I mean, I t- I actually devoted a chapter to this in the book. Um, it's there. First off, there is no perfect, and it, perfect is a word. I even in this conversation already avoided it once. I almost said it and, uh-huh. and retracted it. Uh, because there is no perfect and, you know, perfect to me and mastery are two words that kind of fall into the same category. And, uh, I will never achieve perfect. I mean, if Michelangelo didn't, I won't. It seems unlikely at least. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, 
it, it depends on what one is doing. I mean, I have projects that I do for myself that one could call vanity projects that I do. They're not for money. I do art, artistic projects, musical projects, uh, building projects where I make things. And to me, it's important to build those to the highest standard I can possibly attain to. I to do them as well as I can possibly manage. And then after that, I can look at my own shortcomings and go, and, and I have to learn to live with my shortcomings. And, uh, but also when it's a professional job, there's a budget, there's a timeline, there's a, there's a client involved who needs that thing done. And at that point, compromises are, there, there is no not compromising. There is going to, there are going to be compromises in the way to accomplishing anything. When it's a professional project and there's a time schedule, I have to get that thing done. It's actually more important to, to my clients usually that I get it done than that I get it perfect. I do hold myself to a, a really high standard. I mean, I, I, I want things, I want them to think it's perfect. And I, I've had clients tell me it's perfect or it's a work of art. And that's something that can be attained. But when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, it's a work of art. But I can tell you, if you look under here, there's a little <laughs> scratch. Or if you look, you know, I mean, I could tell you everything that's wrong with everything I ever built. Yeah. Um, but But part of what I hear you saying is that in the same way as you've worked to distance yourself from those external um, expectations, you've also worked to sort of quiet that expectation of perfection that comes from you. I just know, I, well, I mean, I, I live, I, I live under a duality that way because I really do what I do a project for myself, for the, for the ones that I'm doing for sheerly for the joy of it and sheerly because I want to do it. It's money is not involved. I, hold myself to really painfully high standards and, and, uh, I'll, I, I won't be satisfied until I've really got the material that I want to use to build something. I will work to get it to a level of finish that's far beyond what I would do for a professional project. Um, and then the, I mean, then the horror of it is really that, I can build something really, really beautiful, but to me, I still see it as a pile of mistakes. Mm. And that let's leads me on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And it's a very it, in a way, it's a very painful way to live because I keep on trying for it. I keep on trying to get something all the way. And and yet every time I come up against my shortcomings, there's always something wrong with everything I do. How do you then find find peace in that dynamic? I am what I am. I, I I only am what I am. I can't be more than I have become. So my own standards have brought me to what I've become, and maybe I'll push a little further. But I am what I am, and I have to live with that. That's Mark Allison. He's a carpenter, welder, sculptor, contractor, and an author. His new book is called Building, A Carpenter's Notes on Life and the Art of good work. Mark, this has just been a joy. Thank you so much. That was terrific. (laughs) Well, I want to read this last message we got from Michael, who emails, I love hearing this interview. I'm sitting in my truck listening with my coffee and a donut parked across a house where I renovated a kitchen 20 or 30 years ago. Still doing it. Still loving it. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.